Well, let's go ahead and begin. You know, Miguel helped us, didn't he, in talking about the issue of worldview. And I think you know, ultimately, there are only two worldviews. There's either a God-centered worldview or a man-centered worldview. This is according to Romans chapter 1. And who is going to be the authority at the center of that worldview? It's either God or it's man. You can find that there are two man-centered worldviews. They're either secular in nature, humanism, that elevates man as the center of the universe and the authority, or they are religious worldviews that are man-centered. And we certainly see that as evidence in Miguel's presentation. But at the core of a worldview is your belief, your theology, and from that flow your ethics, your values. That informs your culture with regards to its institutions, such as the family, the church, uh, its educational programs, its judicial law enforcement programs, and then its aesthetics. This is a common model of culture. And getting at the core of a culture, you have to understand the worldview and you have to understand their theology. And for us, most importantly, their soteriology. Our next speaker understands these issues. He's going to speak to us from the perspective of the African context. Reverend Chulwe Mwetwa is with us today. He pastors Central Baptist Church in Chagola, Zimbabwe, but he also uh, gives oversight to the Copperfield uh, Ministerial College there. So his commitment to equip and train pastors uh, to lead the church is a characteristic of his ministry and his faithfulness, but he also uh, is the executive director of the Ethics Institute for Zambia. And this is the issue. When you have the truth established as a center of your worldview, then it informs your ethics and your values, the way that you live according to those kingdom values, and that shapes your engagement in the society and the world. And we're thankful for the leadership that Chulwe provides. Please welcome him. He comes this morning to speak to us. Chulwe and Wetwa. Thank you, my brother. Well, it's my joy and privilege to stand here to bring God's word to you this morning. And I'm really delighted that I can be one to represent a continent uh, whose people are dark. And by some strange coincidence, uh, that darkness is also darkness of the mind in many respects. But the good news is that um, it's also a continent on which the sun shines very bright. And the sun of the light of the gospel is equally shining pretty bright. And that's very, very exciting. If you have your Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. I'll not be making a formal exposition of this text. However, I will be making allusion to it. <clears throat> Matthew 15, verse 3. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, the enduring potency of the gospel ministry across the globe depends to a considerable extent 
on the church's unwavering fidelity to the Holy Scriptures. Because that's the source of our doctrine and authority. Against the invasive force of culture in his day, the Lord Jesus stoutly set up Scripture as the uncompromising ultimate regulator of conduct. When he disapprovingly asked, why? Why? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, my task this morning is to try and draw out Africa's relationship to the scriptures, and particularly as it relates to the subject of inerrancy. Now, the African continent is pretty vast, and I would not dare to be ambitious enough to speak as one who represents the whole continent. In fact, much of what I will be addressing pertains to uh, what we refer to as Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, that distinguishes it from the north. It's a continent with incredible cultural and religious diversity. And here's what I would want to bring to your attention as I strive to crisscross across the continent. First, I will reflect, and that very briefly, on the pre historic aspect of Africa's religion as a backdrop to the discussion, on, of, of, uh, discussion of inerrancy. And then I will hurriedly consider Africa and scripture in order to contextualize inerrancy. And finally, I will spare time to draw your attention to what I have termed Africanized inerrancy as it finds expression in our part of the world. Prehistoric Africans and their religion. Now from time unknown, African people have been profoundly religious. About the Ethiopians of old and perhaps broadly speaking, the Nile Africans, ancient Greek historian Diodorus noted that by reason of their piety towards the deity, they manifestly enjoy the favor of the gods inasmuch as they have never experienced the rule of an invader from abroad. For from time, or is it all time, they have enjoyed a state of freedom and of peace one with another. And before him, 8th century uh, famed uh, poet Homer observed that the Ethiopians were a virtuous race of people with whom the gods often stayed. And a similar religious fervency characterized their relatives further north, and I'm now moving into Egypt. And this is what is said about them. The Egyptians are colonies sent out by the Ethiopians. Osiris, having been the leader of the colony and the larger part of the customs of the Egyptians, 
are they hold Ethiopian, the colonists still preserving their ancient manners? And that is uh, a quote from the father of history, Diodorus. Or rather, that, that was from uh, uh, Her uh, Her uh, Herodotus. Diodorus, now I just want to refer to Herodotus, who says it was the Egyptians too who originated and taught the Greeks to use ceremonial meetings, processions, and liturgies, a fact which can be inferred from the obvious antiquity of such ceremonies in Egypt compared with Greece, where they have only recently been introduced. Isocrates, a contemporary of Plato, went on to say, it is especially worthwhile to praise and admire the piety of the Egyptians in their service to their gods. They are so holy and solemn about these matters that oaths sworn in their sanctuaries are more credible than those sworn by others. And each believes that he will immediately pay the penalty for his transgressions. He will not escape detection for the present or defer his punishment to his children. Rather bizarrely, Egyptians had several biotic deities. They came about over time by careless use of objects as metaphors of the divine. Call it reckless anthropomorphism. And this is what Plutarch would say. The zoolatry and apparent superstition of Egypt or is it of Egyptian religion, were merely an allegorical veneer of the masses, the priests, and all those who had been initiated knew that in reality the zoolatry and fantastic myths concealed deep abstractions and a profound understanding of the universe. One said the ancient African people perceived God, however imperfect, through the natural phenomena. In other words, we notice that ancient Africa, and perhaps it has run on to uh, our own days, were content with faith in the midwives, the midwives of knowledge of God. And uh, the apostle reminds us in Romans 1, verse 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But they were content with general revelation, and they did not press on to special revelation. Now, though African religions believe, believe, religious beliefs have largely been conveyed in oral kits, written forms were not unknown. Diodorus again says, of the two kinds of writing which the Egyptians have, that which is known as popular or demotic, is learned by everyone, while that which is called sacred is understood only 
by the priests of the Egyptians who learned it from the fathers as one of the things which are not divulged. But among the Ethiopians, everyone uses these forms of letters. Now these would, sacred books would be books that were held in the custody of the priests, and of course they were deeply venerated, and in the context of our subject today, they would be viewed as inerrant. The Africans and scripture, just an overview. And an overview of African perspectives on scripture will help us appreciate the diverging parts we use to enter scripture, to understand scripture. And I'll try to be as brief as possible. We also have our atheists. Maybe they express their atheism in a slightly different way, and uh, perhaps we could uh, refer to them as um, deity skeptics. Maybe that's more accurate. So we do have our deity skeptics who question uh, the existence of God, not because that's how they were schooled, not because that's how they've been raised, because African people generally are very religious, but rather because of learning or exposure or some experience that made them question or doubt the existence of God. And inevitably such people have an attitude to scripture that is rather dismissive. They have an attitude that at best can be described as referring to scripture as a book of wisdom and nothing more. What about the non-atheist? And I've deliberately preferred to describe these as non-atheists. It sounds like a lazy way of classifying people, but you will appreciate why. In the non-atheist community, I include all the unbelieving, all the unbelieving religious people that are not decidedly Christian and evangelical. Their overarching view of Holy Scripture is as follows. A good number of them would look at the Scriptures as the holy book, in other words, of the character of divine origination. It is venerated. It is authoritative for moral and spiritual guidance. And now we're getting into murky waters. It is one among other sacred books or sacred authorities. And side by side that, uh, there you might include um, uh, traditional beliefs or traditional dogma. They would further add that it possesses intrinsic power. You might add, not intrinsic, but magical or mystical power. Uh, and some treat the scriptures as having a, 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 some kind of uh, uh, charm, magical charm. And you'd be interested to note that even a witch doctor plying his trade, his nefarious trade, will have a Bible by his side as if to validate his wicked deeds. What about the evangelicals? Well, generally speaking, evangelicals believe the Bible is inspired 
and authoritative. They generally uphold inerrancy as a pivotal doctrine on which scriptural authority is based. Inconsistency in upholding inerrancy is usually a byproduct of ignorance, not decided belief. Scripture, furthermore, is believed to be the sole authority in matters of faith and conduct. Now let me spend a little more time on what I've referred to as Africanized inerrancy. Now as I unfold Africa's attitudes to inerrancy, I take it that we have a common understanding that uh, biblical inerrancy is the belief that scripture possesses the quality of being free from error, being in perfect harmony with the truth. As in other societies, biblical inerrancy in Africa is nuanced by its complex system of beliefs expressed in a variety of cultural practices and traditions. Three, three cultural norms generally fashion inerrancy. The first is hierarchicalism, traditionalism, and I would add syncretism. And my brother made my work ever so easy. I, I didn't realize we share uh, 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 common genes, even in error at some points. <laughs> now these, as you'll appreciate, shape Africans, uh, African people's worldview and their understanding of Christianity as a whole. And in the context of our discussion, they are the ones that construct the mold in which biblical inerrancy is carried. What about hierarchicalism? Uh, how do we relate to this and how does it relate to our subject today? We need to appreciate that African society is stoutly hierarchical. It is stoutly hierarchical. In this hierarchy, Seniority is usually uh, based on age, cultural status, or power. And deference is to the judgment of family and community leaders over and above all other authorities in matters of life. Their opinions constitute the regulatory uh, 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 guidance or indeed principle of conduct. This is because they are seen as vital custodians of cultural wisdom. And if we are to be a people true to ourselves, we must have a culture. And the cultural guides will be the older people. And for that reason, we want to listen to them, want to be guided by them. And we give them the mandate to guide us. But where scripture contradicts the doctrine of these cultural guides, there scripture risks losing its molars and inerrancy bleeds. And that's the problem. Traditionalism. Traditions are long-standing customs and beliefs. And that's true all over the world. 
But because these date back to the historical past, and the authors or pioneers of this tradition who would still be the repositories of wisdom in this history and this tradition are the living dead, or better referred to as our ancestors who have passed on. In other words, they exist in the spiritual realm, but no longer with us. There is an inevitable connection between these wide guides who are in the spiritual uh, state of existence with their descendants who are in the physical state of existence. So if we are going to uphold our traditions, inevitably, we must maintain this link. And what that means, therefore, is that in the average traditional African context and setting, the link is not easily dissolved. Even when you get educated, even when you become a Christian, you are raised to appreciate this link consciously or unconsciously. Uh, Turaki observes that ancestors are believed to be the custodians of kinship, religion, morality, ethics and customs, and are expected to bless the community when traditional customs and beliefs are upheld. As such, the spirits of ancestors are not too far removed. Yeah, some rivers might be where they have chosen to dwell. Some trees, some mountain might be their residing, at least temporal place of residence as they seek to reach out and provide oversight in traditional matters. That would be the understanding. Two implications arise out of this. In the extreme case, homage has been paid to these totems. And you do get people who still have some kind of reverential relationship to some of these objects that are identified as the residences of their ancestors. One thing you'll notice that ancient Greeks, Roman Catholics, and traditional Africans have in common. Perhaps two things. One is belief in apotheosis. Our ancestors do not just die, and particularly the good ones. They die and they are upgraded to some level of deity, and so they are powerful. And because they are upgraded to that exalted status, secondly, they are worshipped. So, the ancient Greeks, our comrades, the Roman Catholics, and traditional Africans have these three things in common. But of course, that is not to be expected among evangelicals. What do you notice among Christian people in general in relation to uh, traditions that touch on what I have just made reference to?
Now, in general, most rites or traditional practices relating to births, initiation, family relationships, marriages, you might include cures, deaths, and burials, would be observed among Christian people and non-Christian people. So you find harmony of practice there. That's our culture, that's our traditions, generally speaking. Let's observe the points of convergence and points of divergence. Regarding the non-Christian or the non-believers, they are gripped by fear of offending the ancestors as a motivation to comply. Believers observe them as benign tradition. It's harmless. It's just who we are. That's our distinctive. Believers, furthermore, would ordinarily shun practices that have overtly superstitious connotations. For instance, activities involving sacrifices, libations, ritualistic cleansings. Good Christian people would stay clear of these practices. Of course, you do have those who are timid. They don't have the courage to confront uh, uh, their elders or traditional leaders or whoever they may be that are, 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 are guides in these matters. And so they'll take their clever theological approach and say, well, after all, meat offered to an idol means nothing, so I can eat this meat and uh, it means nothing at all. So they comply, not because they are convicted uh, in, in real terms, but it's all a question of man-pleasing, uh, but in a timid way. Now, here is a point of convergence. Both Christian people and non-Christian people are driven to compliance by fear of possible misfortune. Christian people will not so much consciously think of it in terms of fear of ancestral reprisals, but just misfortune. And I don't know how to explain this to you people if it doesn't make sense. In other words, there's this understanding that if you are not compliant, compliant of the traditional expectations, you risk misfortune befalling you. Bad luck is your lot. That could explain why your daughter is sick. That could explain why you're flanking your exams. That could explain why you have not got an acceptance to Bible college. Now, it is here that the schizophrenia of African Christianity manifests. An active awareness of divine power blended with indolent belief in ancestral intervention where there is cultural deviance. Now, for the Christian person, obviously, they're not conscious of all this, uh, this, you know, this, this um, uh, ancestral connection, but because that's their socialization, that's how they are 
religized, if we might put it that way. Just this awareness that if you do not conform, you're exposing yourself to misfortune. They might spiritualize it and understand it in the sense that God will not smile upon you. And so it's spiritualized in that way, but it's, it's undergirded by this belief in ancestral powers and ancestral connectivity. So you might bring in words like taboo, and taboo is actually dis, is, 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 is dreaded by both Christian person and non-Christian person. And, and this is really a code word for cultural deviance whose sanctions range from social isolation to spiritual curses or even exposure to spiritual harm. Now you can spiritualize that, but you know its foundation. Intuitively, love for tradition comes before love for God and his authority. And that's true of all of us. Because the latter comes pretty late in life. It's a late arrival. Hence, in the collision between taboo-strapped traditions and scripture, scripture comes out dented. Inerrancy is at these points inevitably compromised. In ministering to the Jews of his day, Jesus was confronted with similar first-generation presuppositions, as I would call tradition. That's what we grow up with. That's what we are born with. That becomes our first-generation presupposition. And he had to confront this. And so frustrated was he that he charged in the text that we read from. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. For the sake of your tradition, because of that through which you've been nurtured, that which is your firstborn inheritance, referred to as your worldview, you render void, invalid, obsolete, the word of God. Let me give a few examples of how culture can be invasive of inerrancy. Now, only a meticulous analysis of African culture will satisfactorily make sense of the connection between some sinful habits that will prevail among African people and tradition. There is a connection. There is a connection between the sins that are prevalent among people in the West with their culture, just as is true among African people. Now, in all this, of course, uh, Adam the first is not to be considered passive. He, he's not just a bystander wondering why African people are guilty of these trespasses. Uh, he is actually responsible. So we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam. But there's a sense in which culture nuances this inheritance. It allows for some sins to express themselves more 
virulently than others. And that's what we want to see here. So uh, African friends, if you are here, when I'm describing these uh, particular sins, I'm not in any way suggesting that it's only African people that are guilty of these sins. Uh, for instance, I'll be dealing with a, a, a sin of lying in the first place. And just as well before I took my flight here, I was watching uh, the television and I came to learn about uh, one of your, that is you American people, one of your, we call them ministers, I think you call them secretaries, uh, who had lied that he was, um, I think he must have lied that he was part of uh, some special force in, in, in the military when in fact he wasn't. So uh, I was encouraged to learn that you also have liars here. <laughs> and, uh, so African brethren, they lie just as we do. But what we want to understand is why we are given to lying the way we do as frequently as we do. And you, you take note of the word habitual because that speaks of tendency. Habitual dishonesty among African people is very interesting. It's not because when we fell, that is falling in sin, we fell on our lips and damaged our tongues and we could never tell the truth thereafter. That's not the point. We have a tendency to lie because we have this structure of taboos against certain breach of traditional norms. And in our context, finding an explanation for failing to conform is more honorable than failing to conform. In other words, if it means giving an excuse for not attending a funeral, not visiting the sick, which are noble exercises among our people, if it means giving an excuse for not doing that, or even lying, it is just that marginally more honorable than declaring the truth that I didn't come because I hate you. <laughs> so you start seeing and listening to your parents lie from time to time about these matters or in connection with these matters. And in the course of time, you inherit that and you think it's a noble thing to do. That's how you extricate yourself from the taboo. And it sounds pretty wise. Habitual poor punctuality. I don't know why you're laughing. You have that problem as well. Well, every part of the world has those who have fallen into this habit. Habitual poor punctuality is a product of a brotherhood in which interrupting social intercourse, particularly with older people, is impolite. And if you noticed uh, 
any interactions with African people, they have a serious struggle saying goodbye. We don't just say, I'm off, we'll see you tomorrow. In fact, they have a triune process of bidding farewell. If you have hosted me in your home, the first thing I'll do if I want to announce my departure is I'll just give you the first warning that I'm about to leave. I don't really intend to say I'm off right now. So I'm giving you enough time to prepare yourself. If you've got concluding words, this is the opportunity. It might take another 20 minutes before we finally move to the next phase. And then the next phase is leaving the house. And when you've left the house, the last phase is when you're about to enter the car. Now there you must really seriously bid farewell and conclude on all outstanding matters. And for women, it's even a little more complicated because for them, the way it works out is this. They start with any other business during the whole course of the visit and get onto the main agenda when they're about to enter the car. <laughs> so strict insistence on timekeeping is seen as social insensitivity. We, we place a high premium on interaction, fellowship, and conversation. To us, that is the ultimate of human existence and activity. So we don't just disconnect and zoom off to the next meeting. It's, it's a complicated process. And then you also have the latecomer being seen as a victim of impeding circumstances, hence an object of compassion and mercy rather than uh, one to be censured. And please appreciate the background. Here are people that are coming from a background where perhaps there is no car to drive, poor transport system, and so those who are able to drive themselves are at the meeting early and their poor fellow comes late, and the explanation he gives is that I did not catch a bus early or I couldn't get a car or whatever the case may be. And in the course of time, the understanding is that you ought to show pity on such people rather than censure them. None of this is justified. I'm just trying to explain. Three, habitual unreliability. This is a product of a societalism in which the duty of our people to us is emphasized at the expense of our duty to them. Habitual dependency. This is a product of communalism. A communalism in which the obligation of the stronger members of society to the weaker, whether economically or otherwise, are greater than the obligation of the weaker members to be self-sufficient. So we, we place a high emphasis on the disadvantaged. In any community, in the cities, in the village, the, the disadvantaged are vulnerable. They must be protected. And the poor are a special case. And they are viewed as objects of pity, 
whatever the reasons, you will get discipline, yes, and uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty sophisticated arrangement, but on the surface, this is how it works. And so dependency is engendered because of this leniency and accommodativeness that makes these disadvantaged groups or elevates them to the level of victim, victims rather than being responsible for their own failure. Five, habitual poor fiscal discipline. This is a product of a fatalism engendered by the white social safety net spread by the gregarious clan system. Socialists are inherently low on accountability, aren't they? Well, in many ways, that's what we are. It's not state-managed, it's clan-managed. It's family-managed socialism. But the consequences and effects are the same as state-managed or, if you wish, politically driven. Prevalent squalor is a product of a communalistic, communalistic orientation in which no single person is obligated to provide maintenance. Everything belongs to everyone for everyone to care for. Indeed, no one is punished for failure that is deemed to be communal. And so you'll understand why dilapidation will take place. One thing I've, I've discussed quite often with a number of our people is when we have a block of flats that belongs to individuals, we would, and that's owned by individuals, it's, it's not um, the property of one person. There's great difficulty in agreeing on maintenance issues because the understanding is that this is for us also, who is responsible for this which belongs to all of us. And as the debate goes on, infrastructure begins to collapse. Superstition is a product of animistic connectivity and ancestral linkages whose communications are anticipated through dreams, clairvoyance, seances. Greeks seek wisdom, Jews signs, Africans seek experiences. I could go on and on. I don't have all the time. Let me just also emphasize, however, that the good side to this culture cannot be rivaled in a number of these areas I have listed. For instance, hospitality, generosity, humility, contentment, kindness, compassion, submission, and respect for leadership, passion, and worship, faith, and hope. These are exemplary. Syncretism, just a quick word on syncretism because it's an area in which we have serious problems. In Africa, as in the West, Kuniyop has stated, beliefs and assumptions often remain unchanged even after there has been a religious conversion. Thus, many African societies may have converted to Christianity or Islam, but they still cling to traditional beliefs and assumptions that determine how they act morally. Well, brethren, 
here is what I wish to say in conclusion. If scripture is truly inerrant, then all points at which our cultures enter conflict with scripture must be subdued to the authority of scripture. And there is need for sufficient grasp of the traditions in which the gospel enters if we are to help these people that we seek to minister to. Furthermore, churches need to be routinely acquainted with the doctrine of Scripture, the nature of revelation, biblical inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, the authority of Scripture. And there is need for a faithful expository preaching of all of Scripture that not only reveals its richness as the wisdom of God, but enunciates its absolute adequacy for human faith and practice. It is thus that the whole counsel of God is made known. Thus will error and defective traditions be exposed. Thus will human needs be met, morally and spiritually that is, and thus will Christ build his church and his name be glorified. Amen. Chilway, thank you. That was an invaluable primer on Africanized inerrancy. The ability to discern and look through the lens of culture to get at the heart of where truth lies or is rejected. So well evidenced in your presentation serves us all. Thank you very much. I understand why your good friend Conrad Mbewe refers to you as the John Owen of Zambia. And uh, we are blessed today to have you with us. Thank you, dear brother. Well, we are going to take that break, I promised you. Uh, so a little bit longer this time. We'll be back at 10.30. So go ahead.